So this summer, we are taking a tour of the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're less important, but because uh, their books are, tend to be smaller. They're usually collections of messages that they gave over a long period of time. And uh, so last week, we looked at the prophet Hosea. You can listen to that on, online, evergreentn.com, if you didn't see that. Um, and then uh, today, we're going to just go to the next book, which is the book of the prophet Joel. And I'm going to read chapter 2 of, of the prophet Joel. And uh, we're going to, in all these sermons, we're going to kind of look at a lot of the verses throughout the book. But uh, this will give you a taste of what uh, the book of Joel is all about, what his prophecy was. So um, just as, um, let me just give a brief background here. So we don't know much about the prophet Joel, uh, really very little. Uh, all we know is that there was something bad happened in his day, which was, uh, a severe plague of locusts that were eating everything. And so that's the context. And so it's his reflections and what God enabled him to see in light of that event that was occurring. So let's listen with that in mind to God's word from Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountains like a crackling fire, consuming stubble like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you. 
Pushing it into a parched and barren land, its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely it's done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals. For the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust, and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you, You have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you are the God of the prophets who revealed yourself long ago to them. And O Lord, they were able to see because you made them able to see. And they were able to experience who you are. And so, Lord, as we consider this book this day, we pray that by your spirit, the same spirit who spoke through the prophet Joel, that you would enable us to see who you are and that that would govern our thoughts and that we would view the world differently because we see it through the eyes of Uh, that you have given us, that our light shines through them from your eternal light. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless the speaking and the hearing today, that it would be to your glory and to our growth and grace to see more clearly who you are, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2016, November 2016, there were fires at chimney tops and Uh, Within that day, the winds picked up, and those fires spread down into Gatlinburg and eventually Pigeon Forge and brought great destruction. There were uh, thousands of structures that were destroyed and burned to the ground. There were over a dozen people killed, about 200 people seriously injured. And as we woke up the next morning, it was like we were in complete shock and didn't know what to think because we didn't know what was still there who was still there? We didn't know where people were. I remember trying to figure out, you know, was all our congregation still alive? You know, because we didn't know. So it was a harrowing event. And, you know, in times like that, you need comfort. And I, and I, and I spent a lot of time, and I know many of you did too, that reaching out to people and, and giving comfort both in terms of material goods and then in terms of spiritual counsel. But also in events like that, we need not just comfort, but we also need reflection. Because in times where we see tragedy is a time to reflect, an opportunity 
to reflect on the seriousness of life, on the big issues of life, things that we let go in our ordinary lives that just pass us by. We have an opportunity to think more clearly and consider our ways. What are we doing with our life that is so short? What will happen when we die? What about God? What about the world? And that's kind of what the prophets saw. They were, many of them saw these terrible events, the, the times in which you need comfort. And, but they saw beyond them to see the coming of the Lord in power and might. And they also said that this is a time for reflection upon who God is, upon who we are, what we have done, and to see a vision beyond just the event, but to see eternity, to see the serious issues of life, the bigger issues of life. And so what we want to do is to see today one of those prophets' visions in light of a terrible event that had occurred. That is the vision of the prophet Joel. And I want you to look at this from three different angles. First, the God of wrath, the call to repent, and then the God of hope. So the God of wrath, the call to repent, and the God of hope. As I said in my introduction, we don't really know much about the prophet Joel at all. We really just don't know when exactly he spoke. We can't identify this particular event that happened in his life, but we know, and it's not surprising, that they would experience a terrible event like they experienced at this time. Because the, the coming of locusts was not unusual and in mass number, and it was a fearful event, but this one was particularly bad. And so listen to how he describes this. He says, actually, this is worse than you've ever experienced. In Joel 1-2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? So they're saying, we've never seen anything like this. Kind of like the fires. We've never seen fires just come down and rush through Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge like that. But in their case, what had occurred? So locusts or grasshoppers, which they definitely knew, had come, but they were so bad that they were just eating everything. He, he gives this really graphic description. He says, in front of the locusts, it's like the Garden of Eden. And then as they, after they pass through, it's like a desert waste because they're absolutely eating everything. And so he says, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. So he's describing different kind of locusts. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. And so they, they were relying on these yearly crops to survive, and they were all disappearing before their eyes. And so he says, despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. So in this land, they're relying on these crops just to live, and all of a sudden they're disappearing for their eyes. Now, we've experienced many difficulties and trials, but probably nothing quite on this scale. So, and as you can see, this is, this is a, a severe event that threatens their very livelihood, their future. And so Joel says, Joel describes it in graphic detail. But as he looks at it, he, his mind goes to something higher, something bigger. And what he sees in this is a sort of picture of the final judgment when God comes and he calls everyone to account, when he comes to set everything right, to stand as the judge over the world, and to, to, give, to call to account every heart, every action, and to put everything right. And that's the picture that Joel has. 
So he sees this event, but then he's seeing like something beyond it. The final judgment. Listen to his words in Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of judgment. It is close at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. And so he goes on to speak of it in this way. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and, the might, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? When the Lord comes in all his power, in all his glory, the infinite God, calling us to account, who can endure it? Joel sees in this event of the locusts all the nations gathered before the Lord. And he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. It will be a terrible and awesome day when God reveals his glory to the world. And my friends, this is a vision that we need to have. We need to see the God of wrath, the God of judgment. It's not a vision of God that is, is popular in our, our day. Oftentimes people want to see God as sort of a laid-back God who just kind of lets everything go and, you know, is just kind of relaxed about everything. But that's not the picture we have. And, you know, you got to ask people who think that God is just a sort of laid-back God who doesn't care about sin, who doesn't care about wrongdoing, who doesn't care about injustice. Where do they get such an idea? Certainly not from nature, right? Because nature is full of very scary things. As the theologian J. Gresson Machen said, how do you know that God is all love and kindness? Surely not through nature, for it is full of horrors. Human suffering may be unpleasant, but it is real, and God must have something to do with it. So, nature wouldn't lead us to think that God is unconcerned about human sin so, and about human injustice and wrongs. So where do they get it? Well, not from the Bible, at least not from the whole Bible. Now, of course, the Bible says God is love, and some people take that, and then they just say God is only love. But that's not all the Bible says. God also says that God is a God who is holy. He's perfectly pure. He's opposed to sin. He's perfectly just. Punishes all, all wrongdoing. He is a God who's actually angry with people misusing his creation, refusing him to give him the glory that is due to his name. And he is zealous for his own glory and for his people and for his creation. So, but if he, so people want to say, I just follow the God of love, you know, because I follow the Bible. It's like, well, that's not the Bible. That's just you taking one part of it and saying, that's what I like. And that's what I want to hold to. So really, you're the authority and not the Bible. So why should we believe you or the Bible if you're the authority? So that's the question. But also, really, if we just think about this. I don't think there's very much clear thinking on it. It's just kind of like this revulsion to this idea that there's a God of wrath or God of justice. But if we really think about it, 
We honestly would not want a God who doesn't care about injustice. So, I mean, think about it. I mean, even in our day, there's, we hear a lot about justice, social justice. And that's important, that society be just. And that, that people be taken care of in the right way if the wrongs are done to be deal with them. You know, and so what would we say if we said, well, God doesn't care about justice at all. He doesn't care about mistreatment of people. He doesn't care if people are enslaved, abused, or misused. What kind of God would that be? No, God is actually really concerned about those things. Now, here's the real thing, though. What we, what we, what we want to do, though, is we do actually want a God who is concerned about injustice, but we want a God who is concerned about the injustices out there, out there with someone else, but not a God who is concerned about all injustices, including the injustices that we have done. But the truth is that God is concerned about all injustice, and that condemns me, and that condemns you, because none of us have made ourselves what we ought to be, and we've done many things contrary to what God has called us to be, and because of that, his wrath is coming on the world. That's the message of the Bible. The truth is that God is a God of wrath, God is a God of justice, and God is a holy God who is very concerned about his glory and about what happens in the world and that people not be misused or mistreated or abused and that he be honored. So in light of that truth, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, Joel made very clear how his hearers should respond to the wrath of God. That is, they should repent. They should repent. They should turn their hearts and their actions away from what they had been doing and toward God and toward what was good. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart in fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, tear it, tear it like you're grieving and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And he calls them to gather together. That there's not something that they're just to do on their own. But he says in verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. In verse 17, Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. So they're, so they're to see their sin, they're to acknowledge what they've done is wrong, they're to humble themselves before the Lord God, and they are to seek his grace, to seek his mercy. That is Repentance. And so there's an important lesson here in the way we regard the difficulties of life. When we experience events like the fires of Gatlinburg, of chimney, the chimney top fires or, or other disasters, it is a time for comforting one another. And we should do that. There's a time to help one another and to encourage one another. But it's also a time for repentance, to humble ourselves in light of the severe realities of life. It is a time for consolation, but it is also a time for growth, where we stop messing around and pretend like eternity doesn't exist or that we were just created for whatever we come up with in the moment and start to think seriously about what our life is and what we're supposed to be and what God wants of us. It's interesting to note that it is true that this often does bring real and serious reflection when we have difficulties. I remember reading uh, the uh, psychologist Irvin Yalom and uh, what he, well, he did a little kind of experiment over his looking at his various clients. And he noticed that something that when someone had lost a spouse, 
He said, he said that he found that their counseling was much more productive than with the person who's just kind of not involved in such a tragedy. In other words, the tragedy gave them the opportunity to think a, a little bit more seriously about life and to learn a lot of lessons. In that specific point, uh, you might check out some of those lessons from artspeaking.com. That's the right address, right? So my, my, my dear friend Art back there, he's got a blog called artspeaking.com. He did lose a spouse back in 2016, was it not? Right? 17, sorry. And, um, and, and you can see, I mean, it was, a, it was a harrowing experience, but it brought a lot of reflection. So I highly recommend reading his blog, artspeaking.com. And uh, just his reflections now as he's looking back several years after and, um, and, and, and learning uh, from that. And that's kind of what can happen when we see a tragedy. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes said. Uh, Solomon is preaching. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take it to heart. And so it gives us an opportunity to think more seriously than just Celebrating all the time, though we should celebrate too. Now, that doesn't mean, one, th- one thing I need to caution people about is like, I'd be cautious about when you're thinking about these tragedies in your own individual life or in, in a broader scale, don't necessarily look for a one-to-one correlation between a particular sin and the particular event. So I think we should be cautious about that. Um, rather instead see the fact of human sin- sinfulness brings upon us the judgment of God in general and the misery that is in the world. And so we all can humble ourselves in these contexts. doesn't mean because Gatlinburg experienced fires that they were necessarily the worst sinners in the world. But instead, we all should consider, as we look at that, whether you live in Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge or not, the seriousness of the judgment of God. As Jesus said, read it, Luke 13, 1 through 5. Not right now. All right. So... And I think that that's the one thing we need to see is that, um, you know, that so often when we're dealing with issues that are hard for us, you know, there's a, there, there's a need for, for consolation. There's a need for comfort in the midst of our anxieties. But there's also a, a challenge that needs to take place. And so one thing I always say is if you're sharing things with people about trials you're going through, you know, find people who will comfort you. But also go to people who will challenge you. If, you don't, if they're not challenging you, then it's, then it's probably not that productive. If they're only challenging you, it's probably not that productive either. But like, just take a kind of a common example, not from any particular person, but the case of marriage difficulties. So let's say the husband comes and you know, he's upset because, because the wife's not making him happy in the way that he wants to be. All right? And so he thinks, and then, and then he'll give a great description of all the wrong things the wife is doing, right? And that may be true, right? The wife may be doing some wrong things. But oftentimes there's other issues behind it. For example, that, that he begins to say maybe that he's looking for too much in the wife. That he's viewing her as sort of like a goddess who's supposed to be able to give him everything he needs rather than as just a fellow human being who's there to be a blessing. Or maybe he starts to think that the wife exists simply for himself. And that she can satisfy everything he needs. And that he then is the center of the universe. So I find, I find that oftentimes, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that are involved. But oftentimes, we have things like that in our lives. 
that we need to confront. Where we're looking for too much in other people or where we're making ourselves too much the center of the universe. And that calls for repentance. It calls for humility. To, see, to begin to see things right, so, such as that my happiness and value are found in God, not my wife. My wife can be a blessing, but not the ultimate source of my blessing. And that my wife exists not for me, but for the Lord. And that, I, that I'm there to serve her, and we're there to serve her together. So that's repentance, beginning to think differently and to humble ourselves. Okay? So that's the call to repentance. In all sorts of difficulties. Look not just for the comfort, but look for the challenge. But we also need comfort, and that's what we're going to turn to in the last point. God of hope. So I find that as I think about sin, sin is generally a mix of anxiety and pride. So our, our pride calls for confrontation because we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We need to be confronted with that. And that's what Joel is definitely doing here. Like to call themselves, to see themselves as sinful people, who, as, as finite people who need the grace of God. But our anxiety and our fears about the future and our provision call for comfort and consolation and hope. And that's what God offers here. And before we look at how he does so, just let me remind you that the word hope is not just like uh, something, you're wanting something that might happen. Like in the Bible, hope is like a firm expectation that God will do something. So we say, we hope that all things will turn out well. We're not saying they might or they might not. They may or may not, as people say these days, which of course means probably may not, right? But we are saying they will, emphatically. We live out of the hope that all things will turn out well. That's our ultimate hope. And that's not something that may or may not happen. That's something that will happen. That's our hope. But here, the prophet Joel doesn't just leave them you know, wondering if God will do anything. He doesn't just say, you can repent and, and um, we don't know, have any reason to believe that God will relent or not. Um, we just don't know. We just do this because it's the right thing to do and we don't know what will happen. No, he gives them reason to think that God is actually going to respond in a way that's extremely gracious and merciful and so he lays out for them great hope. So we see this hope, first of all, on who God is. Now, God is the Lord. God is a lion, as we'll see next week. God is a warrior. God is holy, but God is also merciful and gracious and compassionate. Listen to what he says in Joel 2.13. He says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This phrase here is taken from from, uh, the book of Exodus. When Moses asked to see God's glory, and Moses and God passed in front of him, giving him a vision of his glory, but he also declared the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And what you will see is that, is that this, this phrase, the gracious and merciful God, is repeated all through the prophets. So I encourage you, again, just take some time this summer, read through the minor prophets. And you will see that this phrase is constantly used and applied in different ways. It's very important in the scripture. It's a very important revelation of the Lord. And, it, and what we see then is that as we look at this, we have this, here we have this gracious and merciful God, but yet we also have this holy and just God. And the great question of the prophets is how in the world can these things come together? 
How can this world not end in total judgment where everybody is destroyed and lost because of the evil that they have done? And of course, the great answer to that is the cross of Christ. There, the mercy and wrath of God kiss one another. And we see that God is both just and the one who declares righteous the sinner um, because of what Jesus has done. So that's in the cross. So as we look at our own sin, we should never think of ourselves as hopeless, as if what we've done cannot be redeemed, as if what we've done, we can't be forgiven. God is gracious and merciful above all our sins. And whenever we see our sin, as, as fearful as the Lord may be in his might and glory, it should never keep us from going to the Lord to seek his mercy and compassion, which he's ready to give. So we see hope in who God is. But we see hope in that God not only forgives, but he also restores. I love this phrase from Joel 2.25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And if you read the rest of that passage, he kind of fleshes that out, what that means. And that really became special to me when uh, I was speaking to a friend many years ago. And he, and he, and he talked to me about his relationship with his daughter. And this, this relationship had not gone very well at all. And then, and then he learned, he, he, he got new insight into the grace and love of God. And he said, you know, I'm going to relate to my daughter differently. And I'm gonna, instead of trying to control this relationship, I'm just going to give unconditional love and grace. And we'll see what happens. And that began to change the relationship. And, you know, within, over time, it, it got really great. And, but then he began to grieve. Because he's like, I've lost all this time. I was being such an idiot. And I did all these dumb things. And I could have had a much better relationship with my daughter. And then he was reading the Bible. And he read that phrase. I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And he realized then that what was lost is not finally lost. But that God repays. God restores. So we see hope in that God not only forgives, but also that he restores. But then we see hope in, that God, in God's desire to work through us. So God forgives us and restores us, but he also wants to use us to do significant things, that bless ourselves and others and glorify him. Look at what he says in Joel 2, 28 and 29. He says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what this means is giving them his spirit so they can see great things and do great things. What it means is that God will work through us. And here he gives a vision. He says, not just the people who are hearing this, but I will pour out my spirit. I will do great things through all people. Not just the Jews, also the Gentiles, all throughout the world. And then he looks through the generations. He says, not just this generation, but your sons and your daughters will prophesy and dream dreams. Now, I want to draw for you an interesting connection in the New Testament. The book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Lord did an amazing thing. Jesus had died, he had risen, he had ascended into heaven, and God was going to show that he was reigning and that he was going to bring transformation to the world. So what he did is he sent his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to give gifts to the apostles, the followers of Jesus, so that when they spoke, everybody understood them in their own language. And people were, 
people were amazed. What is going on here? And they thought they were drunk, because when you're drunk, you speak many foreign languages, right? So, um, and they said, no, no, it's too early for that. Right? I always love that phrase, it's too early. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what he said if it was 9 p.m., but anyway, that's a side note that you can think about and study and see what the commentators say about that. Um, so, but what did he say? Peter, so this is the apostle Peter stands up and he says, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. He said, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. You remember Joel? It's that little book in the Old Testament. He said, he said that the Lord is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all people. And that, my friends, is what is happening in front of you. And you can see that if, if read, read Acts chapter 2. You've got all kinds of assignments now. Read Acts chapter 2, and, and see, you will see that this sermon has the spirit of Joel. Because you will know in, in, the end of, in, in the end of this sermon, they're cut to the heart. And he says, save yourself from this wicked generation. In other words, pay attention to the wrath of God. And they said, what are we to, what are we to do? And so what does he say? Rend your heart and not your garments. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the wrath of God is coming. Rend your heart and not your garments, and I will pour out my spirit on you and all flesh. And then Peter, that day, gave them further hope, which is exactly in line with what Joel says. Because God was not not only going to bring hope for his hearers, he was going to bring hope for the world and for the generations. He says, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Here, Acts 2.28, right there. For all whom the Lord our God will call. God is a God of hope. And God is a God who works through the generations of believers. And that's one reason that we are going to baptize little TJ today, whom you'll meet here in a moment. But the bottom line in all of this is that God is a God of hope. He's a God of wrath, but he's a God of hope. I talked to a man this week who moved up here from Naples, Florida. And uh, he asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a pastor. He said, well, I worked in ministry too. And so he told me he had actually worked at a Christian drug rehab center down in Naples, Florida. He said, it was amazing to see that people would come into this place, and they would hate God. They would be filled with anger, bitterness. They would want nothing to do with what they said about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, at some point, their hearts would soften and to the message. And then they would repent. And then they would turn to the Lord. And then they would be restored. And they'd be delivered from their, from their addictions. And then eventually those same people would become leaders in that community, helping other people who came in who didn't have, want to have anything to do with God come to God. And as I was working on this sermon this week, I was reminded, the God of Joel is still alive today. There is a God who is a God of wrath for sure, but is also a God who forgives and restores and who wants to use us to do great things for his glory. By his Holy Spirit. Amen.